Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. After the Second World War, pesticides became a way of life in America, and by the mid-1950s, more than 600 million pounds of toxic pesticides were being applied each year in our country. Then, in 1962, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, shook things up. Carson showed how the chemical industry, agribusiness, and the government were poisoning the environment. Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it unfit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. Silent Spring helped give rise to the modern environmental movement. And just a few years after her book was published, a chemist called James Lovelock was working with NASA to compare the atmosphere of Pluto with that of Earth. I remember it very vividly. Well, if our atmosphere is so extraordinarily different, so reactive, uh, and yet it stays constant for millions of years, something must be regulating it. And since I knew that these gases all came from living organisms, it must be life that's doing the regulating. From the realisation that Earth is a self-regulating dynamic superorganism emerged the Gaia theory. The anti-pesticide movement grabbed onto these new Gaia principles and the permaculture movement was born in the 1970s, just as we were beginning to recognise that our local actions often have far greater impacts on the biosphere than originally intended. Silent Spring taught us that chemicals designed to just kill pests on cabbages were far-reaching in their toxicity, impacting the web of life in ways that had not been understood. And Lovelock showed that due to Gaia's feedback mechanisms, our local actions can lead to reactions on a global scale. This week, we're going to focus on permaculture, which started as an effort to reform agriculture and has evolved into a way of understanding and designing our relationship with each other and with the natural world. One of the leading practitioners of social permaculture is Pandora Thomas. Pandora is the co-founder of the Black Permaculture Network. She's worked with Toyota to support African-Americans adopting sustainable lifestyles she designed and teaches Pathways to Resilience, a training program that works with men and women returning home after incarceration, and Pandora is part of Resilient by Design that works collaboratively with vulnerable communities in the San Francisco Bay Area to design climate-adaptive solutions. I start by asking Pandora if she has a definition for permaculture. First of all, the name doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, does it have to do with agriculture? I've heard it's from permanent agriculture. For me, the name, I don't want it to keep people from understanding that it's about first observing and interacting with a place, with the land, with a community, and then observing patterns and starting to apply principles that are rooted in ecological wisdom and nature-based wisdom, and then building relationships a lot of what we see in terms of design, of buildings and just many things, it'll feel disjointed. You know, you're in traffic and you're like, who thought about designing this this way? It feels not connected. And, you know, the pedestrians don't have a space to do this and the car, you know. So permaculture invites us to look at 
when we're designing, how are we creating relationships and more harmony, but at the same time, not just sustaining, because permaculture does not want to be sustainable. We want to go beyond sustainable. We actually want to help regenerate natural systems and allow human needs to be met while we're regenerating those systems. And it's also ongoing. You don't do a permaculture design and then it ends. That's the beauty. Natural cycles are always changing and always living and then dying and there's cycles. So with the permaculture design, it's embedded that there'll be change and the relationships will shift. But what you are trying to help is create the right placement and the right functions partnering with each other. Okay, so is permaculture just a bad name for a cool set of principles? It's got a crap name. And the other thing is so much of it is rooted in all of these other legacies. So that's why people that are frustrated with the name have rightly so. It's like someone slapped the name on ageless traditional indigenous knowledge. So permaculture as a definition that I use is an ecological design system rooted in indigenous wisdom and knowledge that elevates ecosystem health while meeting human needs. Permaculture is uh, an approach. It's a lens. It's a series of questions and principles that you apply. Being rooted in indigenous wisdom and knowledge means that many of the strategies and techniques that we might associate with permaculture are not just new, but they're like an amalgam of what indigenous people have done all over the world, but also modern contextualization of some of those things. Talking of contextualization, tell us about your family history. You grew up a long way from the hippie encampment we find ourselves in right here in Berkeley, California. My father and mother both were part of the sharecropping community in the South. My mother's family migrated north to Farrell, Pennsylvania. And even though they were forced to do the, like, homegrown. They lived in a cabin. They had to make all their own food. That was actually more poverty for them because they were forced to do it through sharecropping. It's miraculous that my mother still raised me with this passion for plants um, and observing what was around me. My dad took me fishing. I grew up two blocks from a steel mill, which my father worked at. And it's now closed, but this steel mill, like many, was polluting the Sharon River and many of our communities. What is sharecropping? Sharecropping was a system where there would be a family that lived on someone's land. They worked that land, and then they would turn over the harvest, and then oftentimes they would actually have to either buy it back. or tra- So that's the reason there wasn't much sharing going on. It was actually like forced labor. And having my family grow up in that, I thought, I think, ruptured that relationship with the earth, which is really sad because that's what happened to a lot of families in the South. But at the same time, there was a strong connection and there was this knowledge passed on to my mother, which she then passed on to me, that ancestral relationship with the earth um, and actually my African and indigenous ancestry. 90% of the men in my family have either been incarcerated or just dealing with it. I only know one or two that I can think of that haven't somehow been caught up with it. And so I've always wondered, how would I give back since I wasn't living back home? Don't really see those family members. My question was always, what's my role in this prison, industrial 
conflicts. You decided to answer that question by introducing permaculture to inmates in San Quentin, America's most infamous prison. Before we hear about your work there, though, let's hear from Johnny Cash playing in San Quentin in 1969. I tried to put myself in your place, and I believe this is the way that I would feel about San Quentin. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. It's San Quentin. And here it's like this crazy institution of incarceration located on the water's edge in the Bay Area. And a woman who I was friends with, Angela Seven, had been going into San Quentin for years and running these groups. And she was like, these men need to see and hear you and you need to see and hear them because there's so much wisdom on both sides. But the minute I entered, it was like I felt physically just the pressure of someone walking through these doors and more of the people not being able to leave until someone lets them. Here's a recording from Adnan Khan, who's currently serving a 25-year-to-life sentence in San Quentin for robbery and murder. So most of my time was spent in a maximum security level 4 prison. And in these level 4 prisons, there aren't any rehabilitated programs. The culture is very violent. There's a lot of violence, uh, race riots, stabbings, assaults. And when those incidents happen, the prison goes on lockdown, which means I could spend from an hour to a year inside of a cell. So when we're on these lockdowns, is there is no education. The education that will be um, given to you is basically what you give or what you want, how you want to educate yourself during these lockdowns. My first 10 years was spent 80, maybe 90% inside of a cell. So during that time, psychologically, I think the human brain is forced to tap into survival mode. I feel like that's relative to the individual. So how I related to survival was make sure my mind is sharp. I don't get defeated, um, go crazy lose my mind, so I would read spiritual books, um, the Bible, the Quran, Buddhist books, or any, any self-help book that I would find. My favorite thing to read was about successful people. Um, anyone that had a success story, famous, I would love to read biographies or autobiographies about them. And I think, I didn't realize at that time, but I think what it did for me was, was keep a sense of hope. Um, and whatever hope looked like, I felt like I had something still to look forward to. Holy crap, I can't even imagine what it must feel like to spend a week, let alone an entire life in San Quentin. Pandora, what did it feel like when you were there? Just brought in like my, just everything people in my family and my ancestors have dealt with. So when I start, I met these men who had started something called the Green Life, which was a peer mentoring eco-literacy program where they wanted to work to empower and educate each other on the future and how could you green this prison system? You know, things that people are shocked, and I'm like, these men are just like us. They're just <laughs> incarcerated. And so for about three years, I had the honor of working with them to run this Green Life Academy. Given that many of the prisoners in San Quentin, like Adnan, may be there for life, how did it make them think about the outdoors? We need to first see everyone's humanity, no matter their circumstance. It was around the time when there was a huge spill off of some coast, and we talked about it in the class, and many of them, some of them had cried. And again, it's like the same pain and frustration we're all on the outside feeling about what's happening. They were expressing that. We would do activities that help them reconnect to stories and experiences of being in nature when they were outside. 
but also on the inside. So they really just loved being able to retrace that connection, learn how to teach their peers about it. So I think they were just excited to be equipped with the same kind of environmental literacy that others have and having it on the inside. And the men also encouraged us to then go off and work out for the reentry community. So for men and women coming home, the powerful shifts that can happen when uh, they're learning about nat natural systems and their own patterns. And so permaculture can also be applied to social systems. And how do we start to shift those social patterns to make it more beneficial for everyone involved, but learning from them at the same time. And that's what working with men inside and when men and women on the outside has really taught me you can do multiple things. <laughs> you can help someone learn more about how natural systems work and understand what patterns got them where they're at and then think of strategies and solutions to move forward. It doesn't have to be isolated. It can be linked. And now a word from our sponsor, Audible. One of my favorite memories growing up in the little village of Grantchester was during the 1970s when a colorfully painted gypsy caravan would arrive at our house pulled by a beautiful white pony. Rackus, the gypsy, would park the caravan under our mulberry tree and would let my brother Ramy and I sleep in the caravan which smelled of ancient wood and magic potions. The ceiling was painted with stars. When my mother first read Danny Champion of the World to me, I was seven and I couldn't believe that Danny and I had so much in common. I really loved living in the gypsy caravan. I loved it especially in the evenings when I was tucked up in my bunk and my father was telling me stories. The paraffin lamp was turned low, and I could see lumps of wood glowing red-hot in the old stove. Maybe because of the wonderful influence of Danny's father, William, my best friend Shane and I became expert scrumpers. We sneaked over the wall into the Beckett's property, ran past their old dog through a fierce blackberry bush, and finally got to their enormous apple orchard, where we filled our big canvas bags with cider apples. We couldn't carry too many because we were only nine. It was scary stuff, though, but nothing compared to Danny and his dad, who are after the biggest prize of them all. Pheasants. If it's all right with you, Danny, I'll be going out again tomorrow night. Will it be Hazel's Wood again? It'll always be Hazel's Wood. First, because that's where all the pheasants are. And second, because I don't like Mr. Hazel one little bit, and it's a pleasure to poach his birds. I read and reread this amazing Roald Dahl book to Marcus and Anya as they were growing up. And the minute the book was available on Audible, we downloaded Danny, the Champion of the World, and have listened to it at least 50 times. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, carrying any genre you could imagine, from sci-fi and fantasy to histories and romance. So go to audible.com slash podchip or text podchip to 500-500 to get started. Audible is offering each of you a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash podship or text podship to 500-500. And don't forget, I'm not a pheasant plucker. I'm a pheasant plucker's mate. I'm only plucking pheasants because the pheasant plucker's late. And now back to our discussion on permaculture with Pandora. In addition to working with prisoners, you help incorporate permaculture into community climate resiliency projects. One of them is in Marin, only five miles from the gates of San Quentin Prison. We are a part of a design competition over this last year where 
Marin City, small community, 3,000, I think, people, they have been dealing with flooding and all sorts of other challenges that many communities have dealt with. But specifically, this design challenge was focused on climate resilience. We didn't start as designers to go in and say, we're going to come up with some designs and then we'd love to get your feedback and uh, engage you as a community. We wanted to turn that on the head and start with, what do you as a community even need us to focus on? What are you already doing? What assets already exist? What around flooding have you been doing and um, emergency preparedness? So they assessed. They shared their stories. We talked a lot about what it has looked like as long as these African-American communities actually all moved there at the same time to work in the shipyards. So they have that knowledge and that legacy. Then as they assessed what happened, we started to go out onto the land, observe, and then slowly they learned and shared strategies. So what might you do in this site to curb flooding. And then we would share ideas, they would share ideas. And so in this course that was called Designing Our Own Solutions, we taught permaculture, but we made it relevant. So how did you make it relevant for them? We created what's called a people's plan for Marin City. And this people's plan is not a static plan. It's a plan that can be changed and adapted. And it's rooted in, again, the assessment, the knowledge, the systems awareness that the people in Marin City had that we elevated with them. And then they came up with six projects throughout Marin City that is a combination of a resiliency hub with water storage tanks and an intergenerational garden and solar panels so that there's an emergency. This can be the place where everyone in Marin City can go to and there'll be food and energy uh, power and water. Now the county wants to include the people's plan. Now political leaders are saying, wow, instead of just inviting community members to town hall, how do we continue to equip community members to elevate their eco-literacy? And they come up with a plan, and then we are engaging with that plan. It takes the work off of their shoulders. They then are at a more peer level rather than just having the experts come in and not always be able to translate. There's all these different communities, and many of them have left out the voices of so many, but the ones that are including the voices are more the environmental justice and the like black land liberation movement. Sounds like they're huge opportunities to use the practices from permaculture to get local knowledge into decision-making. I wish there was co more coordination that started with acknowledging what oftentimes are communities of color, low-income communities, all these different communities that are just on the ground doing things because they're taking lead to solve without bureaucracy, listening to all these environmental justice leaders that have been doing this and saying all this stuff for years and ignored and throwing a little bit of pittance, but it's like it has, it's been racist. So how do you view your role, Pandora? I'm kind of hoping I can be the bridge, but funnel resources more on the ground where it's like immediately shaping lives and usually more inclusive. Usually the strategies and the solutions that come from these smaller community-based organizations are what we call in permaculture stacking functions. So doing multiple things with one situation. 
you get your health screening and there's childcare and you're learning about food, but there's also some hip hop music, but there's also, you know, a ritual to deal with the police shooting that just happened. A lot of these small organizations know how to integrate and really listen to because they are the people experiencing it. And I want to be a bridge as much as possible to those different worlds. The early days of permaculture movement kind of looks like a bunch of old white guys gardening on Sundays, but doing it using traditional practices. Is that fair? There's a lot of folks who are like the founders of permaculture, two white guys from Australia, and how dare they? And they're right. So what I usually say is I will credit them with the research, the analysis, the energy they did to compile this wisdom from all over the earth (laughs) that had been happening. Compile it, packaging it, and reselling it, and actually doing it. I'll credit them with that and knowing that these truths are ageless. They come from such a deeper place. Yes, I use permaculture when it's relevant, but I also, in the Black Permaculture Network, we call it Afro-Indigenous. And you decided to use those principles, including the teachings of the Black Panthers, to create your own movement. So myself and a woman named Zakia Harris co-founded the Black Permaculture Network in response to other Black folks being like, where are we in this permaculture movement? Sometimes we get white folks who are like, how do we support the Black Permaculture Network? And we don't want to just be like, give us money. But... It's kind of an organization for black folks to really lift each other up and share resources. And so we felt defining what these principles are for us and rooting it in our language and wisdom and legacy was really and is key. It's the relevance piece. Even being mentored by someone can be challenging because it was only men available for mentoring. So I've met a lot of um, young people who said they couldn't find a mentor, that it was comfortable. I teach a permaculture teacher's training for women. And it's not just about teaching land-based permaculture design, but how do you integrate these principles into your life? So that's been really powerful to do it for myself and then be able to share it, especially with other women, because in the permaculture community, it's largely been um, men for a long time who've received a lot of the accolades and mostly men of European ancestry. How does permaculture help us reach across the political divide? I keep wondering how... Can I sit in a space with someone that seems different and think about what they bring to the table and listen and not just already have my, you're a Trump supporter, you're this, but it's like, see someone, if I claim that we're all part of an ecological system and we need relationships, what would it look like listening to the people that it feels we're so separate from, um, because we kind of do that to the earth. Like we're so disconnected from trees that give us life. We treat it as other. And so I feel like we do that with people. And in the social permaculture training, it really helps you slow down and start to identify patterns. How am I observing and interacting with this situation instead of demonizing you and attacking, but sitting back and trying to nurture and design a way for us to be together with each other and really honor each other, we might not work together, even agree, or even end up liking each other. But I haven't killed you. (laughs) I haven't shot you or taken your humanity. It's like I've been able to at least be in space with you. So that's like my big dream for the permaculture community to have spaces where we're bringing this approach to observe and interact 
What are the first steps beginners can take to engaging in permaculture practices? You can actually start going outside and strengthening, building wherever you're at, your relationships with your environment, your local area. Just start to build your own relationship with the land, the systems that you're a part of, the communities and what they're dealing with. And I'm taking it back to that word. Start to identify what assets do you actually have, what resources do you have access to already? Like, do you live somewhere and there's like a library that has speakers or there's have somewhere there might be something that you can go and hear someone speak or just start to connect with others who are practicing it so that you're not on this journey alone. And then also try to see if there are people that you could start connecting with who could also help you learn together. Pandora, do you have any go-to permaculture resources? So there's a movie, it's called Inhabit, and it takes this difficult permaculture concept and contextualizes it. Here's a clip from the movie Inhabit. Nature's the best thing we got. Like, point to something else that's better. Like, there's nothing that we don't have anything else. And it hasn't only survived. It's, it's thrived. It's found ways to adapt to, to new conditions. A keystone species is any species in an ecosystem whose population and behavior affects every other species. That's certainly what we are as a species right now. In order for us to design an agriculture or a culture that is ecological, then we have to look to our local models, and that's the forest. That is our teacher. Creating a multi-storied ecosystem with mushrooms and berries and fruits and nuts and grazing animals and vegetables all interwoven, this idea of permaculture, we can actually be healing forces. Inhabit sounds like a great movie and Pandora happens to be in it. You can go to inhabitfilm.com to download or stream it. Pandora, what are the big questions that you're wrestling with at the moment? How are we creating practices or having ways that keep us connected to our land base or what gives us life? How are we starting to take steps to be doing the thing that we think needs to happen? So if you are committed to uh, climate adaptation, but in ways that are more inclusive, maybe you can start going to hear what different groups of people are doing on it already. You don't have to make up the solution. That's the other thing. People are like, we need innovative solutions. And I'm like, I mean, it's Silicon Valley area. Yes, but so much of what our ancestors and our elders have been saying we haven't effectively done. And when you really unpack permaculture, people's minds are blown because they're like, I've known all this stuff. This is like in my DNA. I could apply the design system right to my life right away with my mother, um, but also didn't have to wait to have land because that's where the access challenge really in equity is such a big part of permaculture. One of the things about early views of permaculture was that you needed to have land in order to practice. Is that still the case today? Everybody doesn't have access to land, but we have access to each other and what we're doing now. We have to take it from it just being about the land, but how are we seeing how we work as a social system, also an ecological system? We're so disconnected, but once we understand that, it will empower us more to constantly understand better how to build relationships and live more in relationships with ecological systems because we're part of it. 
When your mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you turned to permaculture for help. She's been living with me for about seven years. And so as that was about to happen, I was thinking of how do we, how do I use the design approach, which permaculture is rooted in this design system, which is you start by assessing and analyzing the situation um, and then understanding the resources you have access to and the gaps. Uh, and then, well, you actually start with a goal and then you assess and analyze and you strategize and you implement. And so I actually do that. I, I wanted to have a life for her. She moved from Pennsylvania to California and it was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I kind of assess and analyze and try to design uh, ex a situation where I wouldn't be away from her all the time. And, and how do I set up networks and experiences for her? And I can say it took a while, but now like seven years later, I'm able to be there for her. Pandora, that is truly amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us and for all the work you're doing to help make permaculture relevant in 2018. You gave us a sense of what's possible by understanding how everything in life is connected. Thanks to Pandora for all the work you are doing to help make permaculture relevant in 2018 and for giving us a sense of what is possible by understanding how everything in life is connected. I loved how Pandora suggested that the first thing we can do to begin integrating permaculture into our lives is to simply walk out our front door and see what's happening in our neighborhoods. When I was hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail, I realized that it was the small things on the path that really engaged me, from lupine flowers to pine needles, rather than focusing on a hierarchy of beauty that began and ended with the mighty Sierras, the web of life is what kept my interest day in, day out. Using permaculture as a design tool to help local communities define their own path for dealing with climate change was totally cool. I'm so excited to find out more about permaculture as it seems like a great way of marrying indigenous knowledge and practices with a modern understanding of the world. Next week, we discover that while rock and roll may not be noise pollution, the sound of highways in our communities certainly is. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld. Have a fabulous week. Mm -hmm.